Hi, it's Jackie. And if you've been listening to any of the chatter on social media about the books written by Beth Allison Barr or Kristen Dumez, or if you've listened to any of the podcasts on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, or followed the Me Too or Church Too movements, or read anything on Beth Moore and the CBC, then you know that whenever the underbelly of patriarchy, biblical manhood, is exposed, that there are these gatekeepers ready to defend to the death. I have spent years studying this issue of masculinity in America, and what I have concluded is much of what we've been taught is actually cultural, not biblical. So I wanted to go back to Jesus and ask him, what does it mean to be a man who follows after you? How does your life help us understand what it means to be a real man? Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Today, I start our three-week series on manhood by talking with Carolyn Custis James. In 2015, she wrote a book called Maelstrom. And I got to be honest with you, it's an excellent book, but it's before, it was before its time. And it's being re-released again because now is the time. See, we have been told the problems. They have been presented and the damage has been exposed. But what's the path forward for our men? That's what we need to have help with here. And that's what Carolyn's here to discuss. A way forward. Carolyn is a theologian, an adjunct professor, and a consulting editor for Zondervan's exegetical commentary series on the New Testament. She has written several books, all of which I have read. They are life-changing. She has taught us what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world. And in 2013, Christianity Today named her one of the 50 evangelical women to watch. Basically, she's got it going on, and we are privileged to have her here with us today. Welcome, Carolyn. I appreciate you coming on again. I hope to have you again and again because we need to hear your mind over and over and over. I, when I wrote my other books about, you know, narratives in the Bible about women, I kept encountering these men that that aren't the big stars when we talk about the Bible's narratives. You know, they were men who get overlooked, men whose, you know, things that are written about them just are an, a disruption to the main story, like Judah, you know, Jacob's fourth son, um, his his chapter in Genesis is, is an annoying interruption because you're right in the middle of the Joseph story where he's been sold by his brothers and Judah was the ringleader into slavery 
in in Egypt and you're wanting to know what comes next and instead there's this little you know detour in into Judah's story. And a lot of pastors when they preach their Genesis will skip that chapter, <laughs> which is um the most incredible story, I think, in all of Genesis. And it's the it's the turning point. It's the pivot of the whole book. Um, but you've got to you've got to get Judah. You've got to we've got to understand him better. And a lot in in that story throws us off. But anyway, I wanted to write about these men because their stories are just amazing, and um, we don't talk about them very often. Or if it's like Barak and Deborah and Jael, we everybody mocks him, calls him a coward. Right. And um, and I wanted to write about. I wanted to write Lost Men of the Bible. I wrote Lost Women of the Bible. I wanted to write Lost Men of the Bible, but it sounded too much like a women's Bible study. So I, after I got into the topic, I called it Maelstrom. But um, I didn't, like I said, I wasn't, I, I didn't have patriarchy in mind. And the more I started looking at the issues that men and boys are facing in today's world and all over the world, um, I realized I was I was writing about patriarchy and I needed to talk about it. So and I, the whole thing just grabbed me by the neck and pulled me into this study of patriarchy because you know the, we we teach patriarchy in the church. We've taught patriarchy for generations. So let me let and, me let me pause you there for a minute because I suspect a lot of our listeners don't actually know what the word patriarchy actually means. I mean, you have an idea. It's something that you heard about that you think happened a long time ago in America and is not a part of American society today. So can you just pause for a second and tell us what you mean when you say patriarchy? Um, yeah, and and you you made the statement, which is the second part of that question is, do you think it still exists today in America? Because I think a lot of us, when we hear that word patriarchy, we think, well, that's antiquated and it doesn't happen in America. It happens in some other countries, but not here. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's it's about, um, the word itself means father rule. Okay, so in the ancient world, the world of the Bible, um, Patriarchy is what is shaping the family. So it's the rule of the father, and he passes that rule on to his firstborn son. And having a firstborn son is like everything. And so, you know, if a wife, if a wife can't get pregnant or if she just gives birth to daughters, it's a major calamity because a man needs a son. And um, I read Geraldine Brooks' book, Nine Parts of Desire, and she encountered a man in, in, the palace, in Palestine whose wife had a, had a baby girl, and then she couldn't get pregnant again. And he was frantic. And what he said was, I am nothing 
in this village without a son. Yep. So the the birth of a son is, you know, the, the future depends on that. The survival of the family depends upon having a son. And the firstborn son is like the crown prince. And none of the other sons are as important as that firstborn son. It's called primogeniture, the primacy of the of the first the firstborn son. And um, you know, it, it it exists in every culture because it is about male power. It's about power over others. It's not just power over women, it's power over other men. And so, you know, it's everywhere. When you see, you know, violence on the streets where one man is, is battling to, um, you know, dominate another, that's patriarchy. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in our, it's in our DNA. You know, we just, we just, that's the way we live. It's all the, all the um, advances for women and their rights is is dealing with patriarchy. Slavery is about patriarchy. It's about men ruling over other men and women. And you know, it's it's the it's the destructive downturn that humanity takes in the third chapter of Genesis where human beings rebel against their creator because that's the place where the the rule outward that God commissions his image bearers with in Genesis 1 and 2 is turned on each other mm-hmm. where we hear that the man is going to rule over his wife but the first thing that happens after that is their two sons get into battle and the firstborn kills his younger brother who is favored. And all the way through the book of Genesis, you have the undoing of patriarchy because God doesn't play by those rules. The culture says the firstborn is the crown prince, but God chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses, um, Esau, not Jacob, um, Jacob, not Esau. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. Um, when it comes to Jacob's sons, Jacob chooses son number 11, and it just blows the family up. And Judah is number four, and that's who God chooses. You know, so it's just all, you can't sustain patriarchy in the first book of the Bible, but we have, it's on every page almost of the Bible. Every culture is infused with it. And so we've said that that's the Bible's message. Yeah, that's one of the things I've loved about a statement you've made that I've heard repeated by so many people, and I've said it to people too, you know, that patriarchy may be the background of the Bible, but it is not the message of the Bible. And I want to back us up a little bit and ask the question, because you made the statement that patriarchy started in chapter three. So I think you have probably one of the best ways of communicating to people 
what God's vision was for men and women in, in the creation story. Often what we hear in churches today, which we would call patriarchy, although I don't know that people use those terms necessarily, but you'll hear it taught in the churches that, um, that there are certain roles, God-given designs, that design that God has given male and female. And it's that he leads and she follows, basically. And um, it's not just in the home. It's also supposed to be every structure in the society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, um, and then what we hear preachers do is they back that statement up by going to a couple of the passages that Paul says about women, um, and they interpret them in a certain way. And then they take us to Genesis, and they say, see, Adam was made first, and Adam's passivity um, is what was sinful, right? He let Eve lead by offering the the temptation the fruit the temptated the temptation of the fruit and he was passive in accepting it and so he forewent his leadership and that just you know went, everything just went south really quick from there um so that that's that is a patriarchal message I, I don't know if our listeners recognize that but that is what you're hearing is patriarchy being taught to you the question is is that really what God says in the Bible and I love, love, love the way you talk about God's vision for man and woman in creation stories. So would you set that for us so that we know this is this is the goal. This is what God intended but as we talk about how it's all broken up and the consequences of that. Yeah. If you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, actually, you're not going to find a breakdown of roles and you're not going to find a power structure. You know, what you find is that God is the center and that he creates his image bearers, male and female. And Genesis 1 tells us that he commissions them both together to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and subdue all creation on his behalf. And, you know, I it's shocking to me that we've, that we've not done more digging in just chapter one of the Bible. Because being God's image bearer is a mission. It doesn't, it, it means way more than you're not a plant or animal. You know, <laughs> it's a, it means that you're, you're created to reflect your creator. And it means that the door that only opens from the inside swung open when God said, I'm, let's create these to be like us. And, you know, we couldn't have a relationship with God if he hadn't done that. And he, that is the central calling of every human being is to know the God who created us. And to reflect his heart for the world. You know, this is the world he loves, that he delighted in as he created it. And he commissions human beings to, to be his agents in the world, to reflect who he is and to do his work, to look after things on his behalf. And, you know, it means our first job is to know him and to begin to look at the world through his eyes and to love what he loves and to care about what he cares about. And 
it's, it comes with heavy responsibility to look after things on his behalf. And it's not broken down. I don't care who says it. <laughs> it's I Jesus to bring, you know, hierarchy into Genesis 1 into what you have is the center is established and that is the creator God. And our humanity is dependent upon keeping that center central. And it changes later on in, you know, in the, in the narrative. But it's just, it's an amazing, it's an exalted calling that we have. You, you know, feminism or patriarchy or whatever you want to call it is a, is a lower definition of what it means to be human because we are created to be like God and the, and the mission to, to rule and subdue is an outward call. We're not called to rule over other image bearers. It's not in the game plan <laughs> and <laughs> not it, in the text. No, it's not. And, and no hint of it is there. And it's not broken down by gender, you know, where men are called to rule and subdue and women are called to be fruitful and multiply. The fruitful and multiply is also about multiplying image bearers of the living God. It's, a, it's an early call to the gospel, you know, because not everybody is, is going to give birth or is going to father children. Um, a lot of people aren't. Little children aren't doing that. Let's hope not. And elderly people, you know, so it's sort of, it's, it's a calling that comes to us with that first breath, and it stays with us to the end. It's not something that can be taken from us. It's not something that can be um, destroyed. If, if, if we abuse a person, we are... We are uh, committing an affront to Almighty God because it's His image that we've harmed. And, you know, it's, it's the fruitful and multiply, like I said, is a call to the gospel. And ruling and subduing is about outward over creation, to look after things, to explore, to develop, to cultivate. Create, human yep. being. Yeah, I've done that throughout history. Okay, I gotta, I gotta and, read. I want to read something that you say on page forty-seven because it's beautiful and it captures exactly what you're saying here. You say, in contrast to patriarchy's fluctuating continuum of cultural definitions of manhood, I hope the men are listening. <laughs> the Bible's definition of what it means to be a man is universal and unchanging. From Adam to the present, every boy child born into the world is an imago day, already armed with his God-given identity and marching papers. He was born to know and reflect his creator and to do God's work in the world. No man or boy is excluded. Every square inch of the earth and every season and, and vocation in life are encompassed in that overarching global calling. The Imago Dei does not require rites of passage. It's a birthright. It cannot be earned or lost. It is a gift bestowed by the creator and hardwired into his DNA that he must be, li he must be lived. That he must be lived. I don't know. That must be lived. Sorry. 
all that to say, I love that. Yeah, ba ba ba. Um, because I think, because we're going to get into some of the men. I, I think you did such a beautiful job in your book talking about men that get overlooked because they don't fit this definition of masculinity in America today, right? Um, they're, they're, the truth is, masculinity in America today or manhood in America today is constantly having to be earned. It's hard earned and easily lost. Every moment it's on, it's on the, on the chopping block to be taken away at any moment, right? And what you're saying, and that's exhausting. And I think about what that does to my brothers in Christ. That's exhausting to have to strive constantly, to have to deny how you're wired to fit into a certain mold um, is dehumanizing. And what I love what you're saying, you're, you're anchoring us back into a Mago Day, which is freedom for yeah. every man. We need, we, need, we need a foundation that doesn't move. And, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible what happens. You know, if somebody, if somebody um, hits you, if you're a man, I remember we were, Frank and I were watching this one of those football stories on TV where this player said somebody pushed him and the player behind him said, if somebody does that to you, you need, you need to make them pay. Don't let anybody push you around. And that's the game, you know, and it, and it happens in all, at all different levels. It happens in the business world, you know, where men are pressured to rise above other men and to prove themselves. And, and part of the proving of oneself is to bully other men, you know, so that it's just, it's awful. And, you know, you hear from evangelical pulpits in America, you are not a man if you don't defend your wife if there's an intruder or if you don't bring home the bacon or whatever, you know, it's all these different, different things. And what you find in life is that life doesn't permit that for a lot of people. I mean, one of my best friends was a man who was paralyzed in a, in, when he was a teenager in a, on a trampoline accident. And he couldn't, he couldn't defend his wife to save his own life. Right. He couldn't get himself out of bed. And he was one he was one of the most incredible Christian men mm. that I've ever known. And, you know, it it was out of reach. That definition was out of reach. I mean he could he was a pastor, so he could you know, he brought home the bacon, but his wife was part of the team, you know, they were doing it together. So let me, um, let me uh, pause for just a moment. Um, I want to take a break. We're going to come back in just a minute. And we're going to talk about how, when women started getting their rights, when women rise, it threatens some men. And we're going to look, we're going to go back to scripture and look at but what does Jesus say about that? And, and eventually, we're going to actually walk through some stories and get to uh, what does Jesus teach us about manhood? Because I think he's the prototype. He's who we should be focusing on and saying, okay, what does it look like to be a human? And what does it look like to be a man? 
you know, who, who follows after Jesus. So let me just take a minute and we'll be right back. I just wanted to take a moment and tell you about something that I am starting to do. It's called Jackie Always Unplugged in Person. It's where we have spiritual conversations with your circle of friends and a seasoned pastor, preacher, and public theologian, me. You get to decide who attends. You get to decide the location. In other words, I come to you and yours. And together, we'll decide what conversations you want to have. Some ideas might be like talking about the ideal Christian woman or sexuality or gender bias, developing your female voice, body image, the role of men and women, Jesus and women in the Bible, or just taking us through what does it mean to work through our faith journey. And if you're interested and you want to learn some more, you can just email me at Jackie at the Marcella project.com. And you can always go to my website, sign up for emails, and you can kind of keep up to what else we're doing about reshaping the view of women. And you're always welcome to join us in the conversations that we're having on Jackie always unplugged group, Facebook page. And please, if you haven't already taken the time, would you take a moment and subscribe to our podcast? That would be very helpful. Thanks. And now, back to our discussion with Carolyn. Okay, so... Um, Most of us today would say that women have rights in America. I want to keep stressing. We're talking about American women. Um, I try to tell people, yes, we have a lot of rights on the books. We have not fully lived them out, fleshed them out fully yet. Um, So just because they're on the books doesn't mean um, we're seeing them played out well. So domestic violence would be one thing. Finally, on the books, you can't beat the crap out of your wife. We still have a problem with, uh, you know, pursuing that and actually winning court cases for domestic violence. Same with rape. Um, My daughter is a rape advocate, and I can't even tell you the percentage of uh, rape victims um, that want to go and report to police and how many actually get convictions. It's it's so minuscule. It's 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 like second victimization to these women. So yes, on the on the records, the laws we're allowed to pursue right and perse- prosecute someone who raped us, but the actual fulfillment of that of actually seeing it come to full, whatever you want to call it, is not happening. So anyway, all that to say, um, but we are far way away from uh, the suffrage movement of, that started basically in 1848 in America. And you say this in your book. You say plenty of Christian men welcome these changes and in fact have advocated for them your husband and I being some of those men, Um, but others view the rise of women with concern and even alarm and strive to stem the tide. The belief in a zero-sum game between the genders where, where gains for women represent losses for men make the rise of women difficult to swallow. And then you go on to say, women once lauded as the backbone of the church are now perceived as a threat. And some people in my audience uh, might be thinking, really? Like, is that really happening? And so I, I'm going to post on my Facebook page uh, something that John MacArthur said in 2019 uh, pertaining to Beth Moore, but also about what happens when women become leaders, so that you can see it in writing by a, a, an evangelical scholar. Um, 
But the truth is, you know, Carolyn, you and I, like, we don't have to have that proven to us because we've experienced it. Um, I know for me, I've had outright verbal assaults. I've been blackballed from uh, specific churches and seminaries because of my leadership, rising up in the leadership. I've been called an antichrist. I always wanted to say to that one, and I'm pretty sure that's not right. Um, And if we've been on social media at all, like in any way, uh, you have to have seen what's been happening to Beth Moore, right? She was fine. I mean, she was lauded as this, you know, token amazing woman for the Southern Baptist Convention until she challenged them and their patriarchal beliefs. And man, she has been hammered, right? And I think about the gatekeepers of like uh, John Piper and Denny Burke, just to mention too, I rarely mention people's names, but they're all over social media. So I'm not saying anything that you can't find on your own. And how they've gone after Beth Allison Barr, right? And Kristen Dumez for revealing this underbelly of patriarchy that's been going on in the American evangelical communities since the beginning. And they're getting hammered. Um, So just to let our our audience know, it it does happen out there. There's There's actually still a war going on of protecting patriarchy and particularly a certain definition of manhood and a specific definition of womanhood. Um, and I, you know, you and I have some probably um, more extreme examples, you know, than the average everyday woman is going to experience. But, and I'm, I'm going to read something. This is going to take a little while. Just give me a second. But I want to read something that um, a friend of mine who's a pastor, who was a pastor at Bentry Bible Church, Pete Briscoe, wrote on Facebook. Um, because he talks about patriarchy and how it actually shows up in ways that are way more subtle than maybe like me getting blackballed or, you know, social media raging against Beth Alliston Barr and Kristen Dumez or the things that have happened to you, right? Um, and here's what he says, because I, I think this, if our audience listens to this, they'll say, oh, that happens all the time. That's every day and it's subtle, But Pete does a great job of identifying it. So I'm going to read it. Going to give me a second to read here. He says this. I have been a champion. Um, By the way, he's responding to reading Beth Ellison's Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And in it, he confesses that as an egalitarian, he still lived out patriarchal behavior in his church and his marriage. And here's what he says. I have been a champion for women in ministry for over 30 years. When Libby and I moved to Dallas to lead Bent Tree Bible Fellowship, my first hire was Joanne Hummel, an extremely gifted graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and we called her pastor because that's what she was. And over the years, we saw the church become increasingly open to women in the pulpit and leadership, thanks in part to Joanne's strong, wise, patience, and excellent leadership. Joining Joanne over the years were dozens of gifted female leaders and teachers all exercising their gifts. But we were still a complementarian church because women were disqualified from leading as elders or governing our governing body. They were not eligible because they were women. That was the only reason. Their sex. That's it. There is a word for this. It's called patriarchy. I'm an egalitarian by conviction, but I led a church for over 25 years that was fundamentally patriarchal. The day we announced to the body that we were going to invite women into every aspect of service and leadership in our church with the joyful anticipation of sharing leadership with no limitations based on sex, the air changed. After multiple conversations after the last service that day, Libby and I were walking back 
to my office hand in hand. There was a spring in her step. By the way, for those who don't know, Libby is obviously his wife. Someone yelled across the (laughs) cubicles, hey, Libby, how are you doing? And I'll never forget her response. Awesome. I got a promotion today. I'm fully human. The air is different. Can't you tell? She would tell you that she didn't actually get a promotion that day and that she has always been fully human. But the patriarchy in the air had made her feel less than until that day. And here's the thing that I think is shocking and so spot on for most for so many of us. She says, he says, for 25 years, Libby and all the women of Bentry were one down. One down is an expression I learned in therapy. In relationships, my therapist told me there are three ways we can see each other. We can be one up, slightly more valuable than the other, one down, slightly less valuable than the other, or equal. Of course, we are equal in essence, but this is about how we perceive the other person and how we treat them as a result. Women were one down for decades in our church until they weren't. Libby was one down in our marriage until she wasn't. Ideas matter. Ideas that depict women as less than men influence men to treat women as less than men. One of the staggering realizations for me over the past five years is that our marriage, egalitarian in essence, was tainted with patriarchy. We settled into a relational norm where I was one up and Libby was one down. My calling was more important than hers, My energy needed to be preserved for ministry regardless of how that depleted Libby. My absence from home life was understandable. My lack of engagement was okay because Libby could pick up the slack. She was there for me. She left a promising career to raise the kids because, well, I wasn't going to. It was just assumed I was one up. Not 53 up, just one. But that one made all the difference. I hear complementarians use terminologies like hard complementarian or soft complementarian to describe how they apply their theology to their homes and their churches. The hard comp men are a hundred up, and the soft comp men are one up. One up is one too many. Women in hard comp marriages and churches are a hundred down. In soft comp relationships, one down. One down is too many. One downing someone dwarfs them over time. They start to believe this is their place and they lose their personhood. So I, I wanted to read that because I think, um, first of all, I love that a man was honest and was repenting publicly. But I think that one-upping and one-downing thing is how many of us live in this patriarchal, patriarchal society that we in America. Um, we may not see it in extreme ways, but I think that we understand. Um, but you give a, a vision um, from a story in Scripture where there isn't one upping or one downing, where they aren't functioning in a zero-sum game. And it's the story of Deborah and Jael and Barak. And I, I would love for you to share a little bit about that story in light of how we are always one-upping each other, not only men over women, but men over men. Well, and that's the story that we interpret. Um, the lens of interpretation is gendered. You know, where we're looking at, there's a woman who is in a high leadership position. Deborah is a, she's a judge. She's, you know, the, she's 
the um, commander in chief of the military because she calls them, you know, calls the general to go to war. And she's a prophetess. So she's got all these fancy labels. And so that has, and then when she calls Barak to go to battle against Sisera, he's not ready to jump into the battle and he's hesitant. And so he gets berated for being a wimp and being a coward. When, you know, when you, when we're talking about, you know, the Russian army building up on the Ukrainian border, you know, somebody who wants to challenge that mighty army needs to think twice about Jumping how many in. there are there. <laughs> any, any general worth his salt is going to be thinking about, do I want to lead this ragtag army, which Barak had, they were a bunch of volunteers and they weren't very well armed against the military might of Sisera, you know, I'm, I'm leading them into a bloodbath if God isn't in this. So I, I, you know, it's never made sense to me that, that Barak gets abused, but he does. And, you know, that the reason that Deborah is a woman leader is because there aren't any men that can, you know, that are stepping up. I think he's amazing. And what we have here is a David and Goliath story where, where Barak and his army are David with five small stones. Mm. And Barak is coming with mili- the latest military technology. And if he takes his little ragtag <laughs> army into battle with them, they're going to they're gonna get killed. You know, it's going to just be a bloodbath. And so what he wants to know is if God is in the battle with him. Mm-hmm. And that's why he says to her, if, if God is in this, then you come with me. He's not wanting her to hold his hand. <laughs> He's wanting to know if God, if God is in the battle. And the message that he gets is, is amazing. The message that he gets from Deborah is that if, that if God wants, he can win this battle with a woman, an unarmed, untrained, domestic. Not even a soldier. And, yeah. And so he goes to battle, and it's an amazing thing that happens. And God is in the battle. And Sisera gets away, and Barak wants to make sure the job gets finished. And the and the amazing moment in the story is when he when he steps into the tent where Sisera has this tent peg in his head and is lying there dead. And this woman who was the hostess <laughs> has killed him. I mean and it, what a moment that is. And Barak is Barak and Deborah are singing God's praises, and he's singing the praises of these women. It's because God has given them the victory. And we have just messed that story up because we're saying, wait a minute, things are off balance here. But, you know, the message that I've drawn from Scripture about the relationship to men and women 
isn't isn't about equality. If we are God's image bearers, you can't top that. Right, right. But what the Bible, the message that the Bible gives us, and there are many strong stories in the Bible where this happens, is that God means for his sons and daughters to be an alliance for his purposes. And and the creation of the woman is a statement that the one God is creating when he creates the woman is somebody the man needs. And when men give a, a woman a place at the table, that's not the same thing as saying we need her and we've been missing something important because it's just been men at the table. Same thing happens to minorities. You know, we may bring a person from another, from a minority to the table, but we don't listen to what they see. And I, I love the story of the seminary professor that I met who said he was a very strong complementarian and he joined InterVarsity and his boss was a woman. Oh, boy. And he wasn't quite sure what to make of that. But what he said was, it was amazing to work with her. Yeah. yeah. Now that they became this team, and he learned from her, and she learned from him. And he said, you know, it might be interesting to be married to someone like that. And mm-hmm. he did. He married another professor. You know, I mean, it's just, but, but it's. What God wants from his sons and daughters is for us to be an alliance for his purposes. Paul uses the language of anatomy to describe how members of Christ form a body. Think about your body. What part of your body doesn't matter? What part of your body are you willing to give up? Right. Uh-uh. I mean, who gets upset over a stubbed toe or a hangnail, you know, or their hair is quite right today. You know, it's, we don't understand that this is God's design for his sons and daughters to work together. It's an alliance in Genesis 1 that he blesses and he commissions them to rule and subdue and be fruitful and multiply. And when we do it without each other, when men just do the work or women go off and do their own thing, we are working at a huge disadvantage. And when we come together and when we really join forces, when we learn from each other, you know, it's, it's, the Bible portrays a very different view of male and female than what we see in any other system. And, you know, it's, and we've lost that. We've lost that. And it's not okay. But you are, and it's, and it's, you are redeeming it through stories of the, Bi- of the Bible, though. I've, I, that's the beautiful thing about your book is you keep pulling us back. You keep pulling us back to these stories, these, these narratives that actually show that. Um, I want to move us to the New Testament. And you talked about the Blessed Alliance. And you're talking about what God's intention was for men and women. I heard you teach on Joseph one time. Not the Old Testament dude, the New Testament dude. <laughs> uh, and I, I'd never considered that Joseph did a gender role reversal 
um, with his story, you know? I, so that's another beautiful example that you give us of what it looks like for men and women to be on mission, for God's mission. Talk a little bit about that. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about Joseph and Mary. Yeah, and I do think the stories that are the chapters in this book that have different narr- biblical narratives of men in the Bible are affirming of men in the strongest ways. I've had men read this book and say, well, that wasn't a male bashing book. And it's not. It's just these men are, I just love them. They're, they're incredible. And Joseph is one of them. You know, and he gets he gets overlooked, you know. I mean he gets eclipsed by Mary and Jesus. That that's sort of understandable. But he, you know, the story would have played out differently without him. And in that culture, if you put patriarchy as the backdrop, that's a culture where if a young woman shows up pregnant and you know you're not the father, then you have your manhood to vindicate. And he wasn't even going to do that. It says he was a righteous man. And the, Matthew in his gospel is comparing the righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness of Jesus. And Joseph is the lead story in Matthew's gospel. Mm. He's a righteous man, and that's not bad news for Mary. It's good news. So he's going to divorce her. He's going to break off with this betrothal and not marry her. And until the angel corroborates her story. And Joseph shuts down his carpenter shop and gets behind God's calling on his life. And he has more angel <laughs> visitations than Mary does. But I mean, there, he, he, he keeps them safe when they are utterly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, and he sacrifices to do that. He has to imagine the reorientation where this man, and there would be an age differential and certainly a power and significance differential between the two of them. And he enters into her situation and, and shame her, shares her shame. Yeah, I mean, people are, people are saying things about Jesus when he's an adult, and you know, they yeah. and Joseph enters into that, and Joseph, it's a, it's a, it is a role reversal. He gets behind God's calling on his wife, mm. and and he's a major factor in her success for following God's mission. You know, so it's, you know, it's the masculinity that is portrayed in the Bible and embodied most perfectly in Jesus is a, is a masculinity that puts the interests of others ahead of themselves, that uses their male power and privilege to empower others. You know, they don't shed their power. They don't, you know, how do you do that? They use it. They use it. You know, Boaz uses it for Ruth. He makes sure that she's successful in her initiatives for Naomi. And Barak, you know, is going to celebrate what the women have done and how they've contributed to the victory that God has given them. 
And Joseph is amazing. He's the cover story on Matthew's gospel. I just love him. You know, you just think, what an, what an incredible man he was. Yeah. yeah. What a, what a, what an incredible how, example. How countercultural yes. could a man be than the way Joseph was and, and Jesus was that way. Yeah. I want to move to Jesus and um, we're going to, we're going to end on him, but in your book, this is a sideline. This is just something that I really liked. Uh, you describe Jesus's appearance. Um, you say he's short, probably five one or five two. That he has dark olive skin and curly hair, um, and I love that. Uh, <laughs> I often give that description of Jesus um, while I'm standing on the stage, and then I say to people, "I'm five two. I have curly hair." I weigh about 20 pounds more than Jesus would have. Um, and I'm kind of a tiny person, you know, and the, what I'm trying to do is to help them envision um, more accurately, if you will, even the maleness of Jesus, his, his stature in a, in a culture where today, like, we idolize men who are, you know, 6'1", with broad shoulders and come into a room commanding, you know, and um, chiseled jaw. And I think about men like Mark uh, Driscoll, which if you've listened to any of the rise and fall of, of Mars Hill, you know, I mean, when you listen to Mark describe who Jesus is, and I've had other pastors in Dallas that run mega churches, and I've listened to them, you know, they're are these they've all they're all wearing they've all got bulging biceps and they wear t-shirts and they you know they're just these macho manly manly looking cowboy kind of men and they paint the picture um to use something that um Kristen Dumas says is they paint the picture that Jesus is a G, is a John Wayne or a Mel Gibson Braveheart you know and and if you really so that's why I love the description because it's like no look at me people I'm short up here I'm five two I weigh 130 pounds and I have curly hair Jesus was skinnier than me <laughs> and about my size and and I, this is I want to read a little bit about what Kristen said on your forward in your book she said um, my own book Jesus and John Wayne showed how none of this should have come as a surprise. Um, For decades, conservative white Christians have been elevating an ideal of Christian manhood that bore little resemblance to the Jesus of the Gospels. Influenced by cultural visions of masculinity that glorified violence, delighted in hollow bravado, objectified women, and championed the assertion of power over others, which is what you've been describing about patriarchy. That's what is resulting in patriarchy. Too many American Christians have embraced a distorted vision of masculinity, and in doing so, they have distorted the core teachings of Christianity itself. So we're, we're going to talk about Jesus, and that's the person we're going to end on today, but oh, so, so important to talk about him. Tell us how Jesus helps men understand masculinity. How does it look for a man to follow after Jesus. Well, what we learn is that Jesus is the perfect Imago Dei. So we all have lessons to learn from observing Jesus, and he should be the centerpiece of our discussions about what it means to be male and what it means to, to be, be female. female. Yeah. Um, and 
and he's not, you know, he gets used in the gender debate in the church, but he's taking us somewhere different from all of that because it's, 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 it's a call to self-giving love. It's a call to put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. It's a call to use our blessings, our advantages, our gifts for the good of others. And the Bible is a, is far more radical than, than we imagine. And, you know, the, the men that I write about in this book, including Jesus, are giving us a different picture of what it means to be a man. Jesus wasn't afraid of women. In fact, he depended on them. Mm -hmm. In his ministry, they were among his disciples. And um, in the greatest crisis that he faced, when all of his male disciples were confused and in denial and, you know, going to bolt. Um, and to be fair, they were in a lot of danger. Um, there's a woman who enters into his struggle, his isolation. It's Mary of Bethany. She was one he defended to sit at his feet. And she, she went through a terrible struggle with him when he didn't come in time to save her brother. And she learned to trust him no matter what. And she comes and anoints him. And he said, she anointed my body for burial. And then he said, she has done a beautiful thing mm. to me. And it was an affirmation of his mission. It was an, an Azer warrior. That's the language that choose for the woman in Genesis 2, that she's needed, that, she, that she's an ally in the battle, and that she brings strength and encouragement to her brother or to her friend or to her husband. Um, and she's needed in the battle. She's essential. In the battle, she's the only one who entered into the battle with Jesus. And you know, Jesus wasn't afraid to talk to women. He wasn't afraid to use their testimony in a world that would reject their testimony. They were the ones who were eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, of his burial, and of the resurrected Jesus. And you know, that was radical. It was totally radical. And Jesus is in the business of restoring the oneness of his people, of his followers. That, that this isn't a power struggle. This is about how we join forces for his purposes. And the center isn't the man and it isn't the woman. The center is Jesus. And as soon as we push him out of the center and make somebody else the center, we are off mission. And, you know, you don't hear 
much talk about Jesus when you hear talk about roles and rules and how, right. you know, rights and, you know, who has rights and who has power. It's, you know, that is, a, that is an anti-Christian conversation. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking, I, li- I like how you guys have been talking about the idea that patriarchy brings sexual, ep- um, se- sexual, ep- you know, exploitation. Um, it brings violence, men against men. It, it puts power at play in ways that aren't used f- for the good of people, those kinds of things. And I was thinking about when you were talking about James and John, how they come to Jesus, right? And they're thinking power. They're thinking, I want the two seats to your left and right, because those are seats of power. It's almost like they think that Jesus is coming. He's just kind of, you know, switching out the the players, (laughs) right? And Jesus, so we have this men competing against each other, right, for those roles again. How how do you perceive that? What, What does Jesus do with that? Well, first of all, I think we've all been confused about what it means to be followers of Jesus, that you know, all of his disciples thought this was going to be the overthrow of Rome. This is going to be a political movement. And, you know, we still think that, you know, that is, that it's about, that it's about power and it's about power over others. And it's about, you know, having your own views be the prevalent views. And, I think, and I think we're still confused about that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And I don't think we do enough inquiring as to what kind of kingdom is it? You know, and and how does the cross teach us what kind of kingdom this Mm. is? Mm. You know, that he would give himself. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. And there's, you know, it is a, it is a kingdom of self-giving love. It's not a kingdom of the fight for rights. If we're fighting for rights, we should be fighting for the rights of others. Mm. And, you know, it puts us in an awkward position to be fighting for our own rights. And I get all of that. Um, and I'm thankful for what, you know, women have done <laughs> for us. We benefit every day from what they've done for us. But it's but we are called to move beyond that. And we have lots of rights and privileges and wealth and resources. And the, there's a I for me it's not so much a gender question as it is a stewardship question. And I've been saying for a long time, when I stand before Jesus, I'd rather be explaining why I did too much than why I did too little. Right. And, you know, I don't answer to anybody else but him. And he matters. And he asks of us things that don't come naturally. The gospel isn't a comfort zone for us. It's... It raises the bar in a million different ways, and there's so much we don't know. And um, and and when we lose the center, we're off mission. It doesn't matter what we're doing. You know, when the center becomes some famous leader, 
you know, some important person or some other thing. We're off center. Yep. We're off mission. And, you know, we need to, we need to bring back Jesus and we need to study him. I mean, I've just been reading the gospel of Matthew lately. And when I read Jesus' sermon on the Mount, I think, this is amazing. This is not how we live. This is not how we live. And it wasn't how they lived back then either. It was so countercultural. It was so, yeah. it still is. It still is. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he you know, and, he, and he's, he's shaken things up and we have domesticated him, you know, and domesticated the gospel and, um, and we have more to learn. We have more to learn. And, um, you know, our roles and rules that we set up as biblical are unworkable in most places in the world. That's right. That's right. And if you've traveled if internationally, you're in poverty, you know that. <laughs> if you're in poverty, if you're in an intensely patriarchal culture, um, if you have physical infirmities, you know, we're, we're hearing about the people who are battling for um, treatments for ALS. And, you know, they are taking care of each other. And, you know, amazing men, gifted, trained, promising men whose bodies are giving out on them and their wives are taking care of them and speaking for them. And, you know, it's, we're, it's, it's, about, it's about being together. It's not about who's up or who's down. It's, how, how are we how are we helping each other to do what God is calling us to do in in my ministry I have been blessed by meeting some of the most incredible men and they're not just American men and they're not just white men although there are a lot of them but they're men from other ethnicities they're men from other countries Um that just embody the gospel. It's a, that they are a privilege to know, and that they give hope to me that God is doing amazing things in His sons and in His daughters. And I, you know, I just pray that that we would um, press the boundaries of our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. That's awesome. All right. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm going to, um, thank you, Carolyn. And if you would like to read more about Carolyn's work, you can find her on her website, carolyncustisjames.com. You can also order her book, um, on Amazon. It's called Maelstrom, M-A-L-E-S-T-R-O-M, How Jesus Dismantled Patriarchy and Redefined manhood. I'll be putting those links up on Jackie Always Unplugged group Facebook page too. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.